you, Amy, for that ministry of music. In any military conflict, it is important that once an army has been able to occupy a territory, that they hold that ground against all odds. Likewise, it is important for us as Christians that we hold the spiritual ground that we have taken against all odds. The key verse for this morning is taken from Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see in joy and crown, so stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm is the exhortation, the admonition. To stand firm is, in fact, a military term. That's why I use the introduction of holding one's ground. The idea is that they are not to surrender what they have battled so long and hard to obtain, no matter what would come against them. The therefore in this verse equally governs that which precedes and that which follows. In other words, the therefore is transitional, and it is a conclusion to the first section and an introduction to the second section. There are pressures from without, and there are pressures from within that would cause us perhaps not to hold the ground as we should. But despite these pressures, we are to remain unshaken in our commitment to Christ and to one another. Therefore, this text easily divides into two sections. Philippians 3, 14 through 7, uh, excuse me, Philippians 3, 17 to 4, 1 gives us the need to stand firm. And then chapter 4, verses 2 to 9 state the way in which Christians are to stand firm. So we look at, first of all, the need to stand firm or hold one's ground against pressures that are from without. Notice Philippians 4.1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, so stand firm in the Lord. Why do they need this exhortation? Well, the need arises out of verse 18. If you look there with me, Philippians 3.18. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping that they're enemies of the cross of Christ. The pressures that are from without abound. There are many false teachers. There are many who profess faith in Jesus Christ whose lives are not in keeping with that profession. And so Paul warns them that they need to observe, they need to mark, they need to be aware of those that are teaching and walking in the truth and those that aren't. The manner in which they are to stand firm is given in verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example. Observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So they are to stand firm as they look at Paul, and not his alone, but others, and follow his example, and to observe those that walk in that pattern of life. Thus, there is need to be discerning. We need to be incredibly spiritually discerning in the people that we choose to follow, the people that we choose to listen to, the people that we are going to allow us, uh, allow uh, to instruct us, 
people whose example we are going to follow. Thus, the need for discernment is great. These people, though they make professions of faith, they in reality fight against Christ's redemptive work. Verse 18. For many walk, whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, and then these words, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Now that's a strong word. But they are enemies of the cross of Christ, of Christ's redemptive work, of all that was accomplished in Jesus Christ's crucifixion. They are not friends of the gospel. They are, in fact, opponents of the gospel, and therefore they need to be seen in that light. Don't put them as friends of the gospel. See them as opponents of the gospel. Paul has given this warning repeatedly, verse 18, of whom I have told you often. Look at Philippians 3.1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me. So he's repeating himself. He's writing the same things. He said, I've told you this often. And it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. There are certain themes in the scripture that we need to be reminded of constantly. There are basic truths that we need to always have before us. And one of these basic truths is that there are going to be professors, there are going to be people who say that they are Christians, and who are going to teach a form of godliness which is not true godliness at all. Last week we saw those that said they were perfect, and they were far from it. And we learned that there is no such thing as spiritual perfection in this life. That is only going to be achieved when we are in the very presence of God, when we die. And so we need to mark, we need to be aware of those that would put forth a false standard of righteousness. If you're going to say you're perfect, you're going to have to have a standard of righteousness that's quite different from the teaching of the Word of God. And there are many people that would put forth a standard of righteousness, a set of rules, traditions, values, and rituals that are not biblically based, that are not in keeping with the Word of God. They're going to hold these avenues of spiritual growth and development and a standard of attainment before you, and you need to flee it. And you need to adhere to the Word of God, following not just the teaching, but the lifestyle of the Apostle Paul and those like him. For... Christianity is far more than just intellectual comprehension. It includes our minds, to be sure. Our minds are a very important part, what we believe, but it's also how we live. And so Paul is going to say at the end of uh, chapter 4, those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. So we are to mark the lives. We're to see how people live that are godly and follow that imitation, and flee from others that don't follow that example. But Paul gives this warning compassionately. If you look at verse 18, Paul is not angered by what he sees. He is saddened by what he sees. For he tells us in verse 18, For many walk before I told you often, and now tell you even weeping. Paul is not happy when he thinks about these, these people and the desserts, the things that are going to 
come upon them. He is compassionate. He is weeping. He's not hard-hearted. He's not cruel. He's not mean. He's not intolerant. We live in a day and age that if anyone is going to practice any kind of spiritual discernment, well, they're called narrow-minded. Or they're viewed as being mean. Or mean-spirited. Or cruel, critical, fault-finding. All these kinds of negative terms we see in the life of the Apostle Paul. That is, he is marking out these individuals. He's doing not so with a sense of pride or, or superiority, or even a disdain or hatred for those that oppose him. He says these things in tears. He's weeping. He's not happy about all that is going to befall them. He longs for their repentance. But these people are not adherents to the true gospel. They are, in fact, and verse 18, enemies of the cross of Christ. And so Paul sets a contrast between those that follow Christ and those that do not. And the main contrast is seen in the end of verse 19. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame. We'll look at all those in just a moment. But here's the overarching characteristic. Who set their minds on earthly things. They set their minds on earthly things. Their, att- their attainment, their goals, their values are temporal. They are associated with the things of this world. They are not associated with eternal and heavenly values. And they use the material things of this world to promote their kind of godliness, their kind of righteousness. But our mind is to be set on heaven, verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven. That's where we live. That's where we think. That's the sphere of our understanding. So now let's unpack these things. The characteristics of those who set their mind on earthly things. First, they will be destroyed in the end, verse 19 whose end is destruction. That's where they're going to end up. That's going to be the final outcome. They are going to be destroyed. Not annihilated, but come to ruin. And it has here the picture of eternal death. Damnation. Hell. It's grievous. That's why Paul is weeping. He says that's their end. That's that's what's going to be the outcome. You want to follow them? Think about where they are leading. Think about where they're going. You're following them on a way to destruction. You don't want to go that way. You don't want to walk in that manner. Secondly, they serve themselves as opposed to serving God. Verse 19, whose God is their appetite. God is their appetite. It's kind of a picturesque way. NIV says God is their stomach. Meaning that the God that they worship is a God who fulfills their earthly desires. A God who meets their temporal and physical needs. They worship a God that is going to give them what they want now. That is so opposite to what Paul is describing as the Christian faith in Philippians chapter Two, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but took upon himself the form of a servant, 
was made in the likeness of man, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death of the cross. The Christian life is one of sacrifice, not one of consumerism. It's, it's, it's not one of God serving us, but of, of us serving God. And there's an awful lot of Christianity today that is offering you a way in which every physical and temporal need can be met through Jesus Christ. And uh, usually all you have to do is give a gift in order to get it. You know, uh, seed giving, <laughs> faith giving. And, and if you provide some kind of material gift, then God is going to just lavish you and give you whatever you want, cars or homes or, or whatever, because God wants you to be happy. That quote-unquote gospel is huge in our society. It's all about this life. It's all about what I have today. It's not about eternal life and tomorrow. And it's about receiving, not giving, not sacrifice. So God is their appetite. They make God after what they want it to be. Timothy says that they have uh, itching ears. Uh, They hear what they want to hear. They take pride in that which is shameful, verse 19, whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame. They boast of their wicked exploits. They enjoy telling of their wrongdoing. They delight in their own sinfulness and the sinfulness of of others. But notice the contrast, verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven. Rather than being destroyed like they are destroyed, we have the promise of heaven and eternal life. They serve a God of their own appetites. We serve the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 20 from which also we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are ashamed of that which stands in need of change, verse 21, who will transform the body of our humble state in conformity with his body of his glory. We have nothing to to glory in today in our sinfulness. There is nothing that we should take pride in in our wrongdoing. We should repent of it. We should be sorry for it. We certainly should not commend each other And we certainly shouldn't encourage one another in continued wrongdoing. That isn't what the Christian life is all about. There needs to be a change. So they need to withstand the pressures that come from without. But they also need to withstand the pressures that come from within. Notice chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see and my joy and my crown... Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Paul issues this warning out of a true love for the the Philippians. Look at verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, so stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. He starts with my beloved, he ends with my beloved. King James, dearly beloved, dearly beloved. 
NIV changes, therefore my brothers whom I love stand firm, Lord, dear friends. But it's actually the same word, and it's the word to be, to be loved. Paul is writing these things not because he is upset with them, not because he is angry with them, but because he truly loves them. I don't know about you, but one of the things that I constantly tried to get across to my children when I disciplined them, and I would paddle them, I would say, I'm doing this because I love you. It wasn't a matter of my hating them. It wasn't a matter of my being angry with them. And I was really, really careful that I wouldn't discipline them when I was angry or in anger. I'm doing this because I love you. I'm doing this because I'm concerned about you. I'm doing this because I want what is best for you. So when Paul writes to the Philippians, it's not because he's angry. It's not because he's upset. It's because he loves them. And he 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 can't emphasize that enough. He loves them. He loves them. And in that love, they are to withstand the pressures from within not to stand firm in the Lord. Verse 2. Paul encourages both Yodica and Syntyche. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Both of these people are equally urged. I urge Yodia. I urge Syntyche. He's not taking sides here. Uh, preacher's humor. Okay, there, there are things that are often said in sermons to try to be humorous, uh, to try to keep your attention. You know, and, uh, and one of them is this passage. Okay, so you have Yorika and Suntachi. Okay, she wasn't Suntachi. She wasn't just a person that had her particular difficulties and issues and, and you had to get along with her. These were issues that existed between both Yodia and both Syntyche, and Paul urges them both. What he urges them to is extremely important. And quite frankly, I don't know why the NAS translates this verse the way it does. But it says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. What does that mean? Literally translated, it's to be of the same mind. And it is the application of what Paul has been saying from the very beginning. He starts with doctrine and he moves to practice, which should always be the case. We start with truth and then we say, now how does that truth apply to our lives? So, look with me. Back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Philippians 1.27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Same thought. Stand firm in the Lord. You're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's what he's calling them to. One mind. That they are standing firm in unity striving together for the faith of the gospel, for the sake of the gospel, for the spread of the gospel. And they don't let anything hinder them in their co-laborship for the gospel. Philippians 2.2. Make my joy complete 
by being of the same mind, same terminology that's used in chapter 4, verse 1, being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. That's what he's calling them to. Have the same mind, maintain the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not look merely out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. He's getting very practical. Yodia and Syntyche, this is what I'm calling you to. Have this mind. Have this attitude. Put other people before yourselves. Sacrifice. Give. Be humble. And maintain the love and the unity of the Spirit. The church is to help them in this endeavor of being like-minded. Notice verse 3. Indeed, true comrade, I ask you also to help these women. Well, who is the you of verse 3? It's singular. There's no name that is given. Who's Paul calling upon? Well, the you is a collective you. It's the church. He's calling the church to help these women. Help them to be of one mind. Help them to be of one spirit. Help them to have one purpose. And the church is to assist them in working together. This word for help in verse 3. I ask you to help these women. What form is that help to take? What are they to do? Literally translated, they are to grab hold of or to assist them. I'm becoming pretty unstable these days on my feet. I fall more often than I like. I'm having difficulty going up and down stairs, and you can watch. And so one of the things I do is I hold on to a rail. And when there's no railing, I hold on to my wife. I do. Okay, I'm telling you my secret. You always thought I'm holding hands with her because I love her. Well, that's part of it. That's part of it. I also need her for stability. The idea here is these women have fallen down. They've stumbled. What are you to do? You're to assist them. You're to help them up. You're to grab a hold of them. You're to extend their hand. You're to bring them out of the place that that they are. That's what the church is about. That's what we do. We help people who fall. That's to be the spirit. That is putting other people's interests before our own. They're not supposed to fan this, this disagreement, whatever it is, between Yodia and Siddiqui. They're not supposed to take sides. They're supposed to help them back to the place where they mutually serve the Lord. These women are to be regarded for their Christian commitment. Look at verse 3. Indeed, true comrade, I ask you to help these women who have shared in my struggle in the cause of the gospel. These are women who have shared in my struggle in the cause of the gospel. What does that mean? Well, the word for struggle here is a word that is used of the gladiators who would fight the lions in Rome. These are people who have fought the lions 
next to me. Not in a literal sense. I don't think they were in some Roman Colosseum fighting, but they had been involved in the work of the spreading of the gospel. They had marked those that were not following the truth. And they were serving right alongside Paul. Just as the others had. The end of verse 3. Together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So Paul says some important things about them. He says their names are in the book of life. They're born again. You ever think disagreements arise among people that are born again? That it's only non-believers that sometimes can't get along? Well, not at all. You think it's only the most carnal of non-believers? You think it's just the, the babes in Christ? Do you think you could get to a place where two spiritually mature individuals can't get along? Two people that have served the Lord together, worked together, can't get along? Well, we're naive if we think so. We're naive if we think so. That's why we have to stand firm. That's why we can't let anything disillusion us, whether it comes from without or it comes from within. We shouldn't be moved. We shouldn't run. We shouldn't forsake the gospel and the church. Our commitment to Jesus Christ and our commitment to one another. Don't let the forces from without or the forces from within deter us in our mutual commitment to Jesus Christ and our mutual commitment to one another. That's why this admonition to stand firm in the Lord is so, so important. The work of God can easily be undone. The testimony of God's people can easily get a black eye. We need to hold the ground that we have taken. Not let the evil one get an inroad and move us back. Standing firm against ungodliness outside and not allow it to come in. And on the inside, not allow there to be strife and division. Those two words always go together in the Word of God. Strife and division. If there's going to be strife, if there's going to be battle, if there's going to be animosity, it will result in division if it's not healed. Strife and division. Put it positively, Paul writes in the book of Ephesians that we might maintain the unity of the gospel in the bond of peace. Peace brings unity. Peace brings healing. Peace brings instruction. Peace brings receptivity. Peace brings the spread of the gospel. Strife brings division. Stand firm. Stand firm in the Lord. From the things from without, the things from which are within. Have the same mind, the same purpose, the same spirit of God. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and we ask that you would help us, preserve us, keep us from all of the forces from without, 
and from the negativity from within. Lord, as your church, may we help one another. May we extend a helping hand to brothers and sisters who are stumbling, who need our assistance. Oh Lord, may we grant to them strength and stability, help, aid, healing. And Lord, may we do so because of our commitment, not only to each other, but ultimately because of our commitment to you, which then means we are in fact committed to one another. Watch over us and bless us. Help us to stand firm, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.